0: Welcome to another episode of Be Now. It's the show where nothing needs to happen because it's already happening. Yeah,
1: yeah. Everyone does have a tremendous creative force in them. Mm. And uh, I, I think much like everyone has tremendous intuition, we've been taught to distrust it and dismiss it. And part of the work of expressive arts is inviting people to reclaim it. Yeah, yeah. And and ha- there was this awesome student who's originally from Korea who was in my class and she kind of talked to me incredulously one day and she's like, wait, so you think we are all artists? <laughs> mm-hmm. And and it was like a stretch in her mind. And and over the course of a semester I saw her producing more and more and more art. She just started drawing even though she said at the beginning of the semester oh drawing's not my thing (laughs) and those drawings helped her uncover so many truths about herself and yeah yeah
0: how did you get started with expressive arts and what is it yeah some people don't know i mean it's still an emerging field i'm still figuring you know (laughs) it is a developing field so yeah maybe start there
1: expressive arts for me is is a it's a set of practices and principles that invite us into engaging our creativity in lots of different ways in order to honor, um, like our teacher Steve Levine says, the horror and the wonder of the world in which we live. And when we get to engage our creativity in doing that, we, we find new resources for facing the horror and loving the wonder. And in terms of how I found my way into it, (laughs) you know, I, I um, grew up loving dancing and then I went to college. I was like this super overachiever. I went to Harvard. And uh, I think at some point I stopped dancing other than like at parties or In classes you know dance classes and so I kind of segmented dance as this very particular activity that was not to be in other realms of my life Mm. and other than dancing I didn't really see myself as an artist and I had no idea what expressive arts was and I worked for a giant bank for eight years and then I quit working at the giant bank and then I ended up falling under the wings of various. Uh, peace and justice uh, activists educators and while under the wing of one of those educators he said why don't you integrate more dance into your practice and I didn't even realize I could do that (laughs) and that led me to kind of study and learn more about dance as a healing modality and as a collective activity that could be engaged particularly to help deal with conflict in life-giving ways. And then I ended up doing more and more of that. And a friend of mine and I started dancing with incarcerated women in our local correctional facility in Northern Indiana. And then I ended up moving to Kenya for three years and engaged a little bit of arts-based work in um, work on trauma and resilience with a lot of different groups in Kenya and at the end of my time in Kenya I was talking to a very important mentor of mine who said um, you know what do you think you'll do from here and I said oh I think I want a master's in dance therapy and he said well you have a master's why don't you try for a PhD we need more women to get PhDs and um, he said why don't you look at the program at EGS (laughs) and uh, that pointed me in the direction of the program that we took, and I ended up talking with Steve Levine, and um it seemed like the way for me to go.
0: When did you discover like that there's healing powers in dance or in the arts in general? Like when was that really clear to you?
1: I mean, in some sense, it was always healing for me. I think a vision of how that could be brought into collectives including people who don't think of themselves as dancers and including people who don't think of themselves as artists. Because when I got to study expressive arts more deeply, it involved all different kinds of activities, not just dance. And most often not dance. So drawing, it involved spoken word, it involved movement, it involved exploration in the forest, in quiet, um, Mm.
0: We've done that. I remember. remember yeah. We got-
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a formative moment. We got lost in the forest, and then you started quoting Rumi about the.
0: Remember his face in the clouds.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Now you now you got me lost in all those visions. What was the question? <laughs>
0: So yeah, well, like the, like one of the things I love that you do is uh, working with groups in different parts of the world and like I'm sure you experience your practice differently and also the same, I'm sure in some ways. Um, but yeah, I'm curious about those magic moments. There's nothing more inspiring than a group of people of like minds coming together to connect and heal together you know what i mean like when i when i think of the the groups in my life that i've been closest to and i reflect back on again and again that gives me some magical strength you know is when our time in switzerland you know and that group yeah. together, honestly that was um that's those are memories I'll, I'll forever cherish in those mountains
1: yeah yeah and i think the only thing that i would say is 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 better than that is when people who are not like minded come mm. together and that same transitional creative life force generates. Mm. You know because it's it's one thing when we are like-minded and we just just fall into the love flow so easily but when we are actually coming from radically different perspectives and we still find our way to flow together that just blows my mind. <laughs> and I feel like expressive arts has um when when it's been facilitated by amazing teachers of mine and occasionally when when I get to be part of facilitating it 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 really opens up incredible possibilities including for addressing conflict um like the unintentional center of my thesis was that I did harm in my research in the class I was teaching
0: hmm.
1: and it was actually it was a lot of different things. It was a lot of people speaking up and telling the truth. It was a lot of non-defensiveness. It was a lot of caring for each other, but it was also very specific expressive arts exercises that enabled people to name both the pain and the toxic dynamics. And through naming those things in arts-based ways, we were able to flow to the other side of them.
0: Hmm. Do you feel like everyone, like this idea of being, cre- like in, uh, in Expressive Arts, um, part of it is about like putting creativity at the center and letting it do its work. Part of our job is to kind of step aside and facilitate the flow. And, and ev- how do you engage or engage people's levels of comfort? I mean, mm. one of the sayings that Judith Essex, one of my uh, first uh, teachers in Expressive Arts, you know, creativity is a birthright. But when you look at the people, like just everyday people, not everyone is creative and not everyone needs to be creative all the time. Uh, like, for example, an accountant uh, doesn't need to be creative or a surgeon, you know, doesn't need to be creative all the time. Uh, but there's pockets and moments that we can engage in that part of ourselves. Yeah. Any, any comments on that?
1: Well, I, I guess I would agree that creativity is a birthright. Um, I think a lot of people you know and this goes to you know the book The Artist's Way I mean there's there's a lot of stuff in the public sphere whether people know the words expressive arts or not of, of ways that our creativity has gotten tamped down um, that that people have been discouraged from engaging their creativity because it's dismissed as not going to make the money or not going to, you know, be a worthwhile and productive thing to do. You know, there's all kinds of reasons that people have dismissed, uh, arts based stuff in general. And, and, you know, when you get into expressive arts specifically, it's its own thing. Um, but I think everyone does have a tremendous creative force in them Mm. and Uh, I I think much like everyone has tremendous intuition, we've been taught to distrust it and dismiss it. And part of the work of expressive arts is inviting people to reclaim it. And and there is this awesome um, student who's originally from Korea who was in my class. And she kind of talked to me incredulously one day and she's like, wait, so you think we're all artists? (laughs) <laughs> and and it was like a stretch in her mind and and over the course of a semester i saw her producing more and more and more art she just started drawing even though she said at the beginning of the semester oh drawing's not my thing <laughs> and those drawings helped her uncover so many truths about herself and who she has been and who she is becoming and um, what her needs are. It's really exquisite to be able to be with her through that.
0: Mm. Say more about that. I also find that pretty amazing how uh, drawing or just expressive forms reveals truth about yourself.
1: Yeah, it can give confidence, it can also give pause, you know, it can also open us up to like places where we shouldn't have as much confidence and we should really like mm-hmm. slow the heck down, Right. Um, right. Which, which was a big part of my experience because I'm like a giant extrovert and I'm all excited about arts and so I'm like, come on, let's do this thing and um, for a lot of <laughs> you know, like, um, and some of my students very much became my teachers when they really said like, this requires going more slowly, this requires more space, this requires more silence. Mm. Um, and in my beloved bubbly enthusiasm, <laughs> I was not allowing for that. So, so in some ways, arts-based processes also help us not only develop more confidence, but also develop more questioning mm. about, you know, what, what we need to be doing with different people.
0: Mm, so staying curious.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So one of the things I love that you're doing is yeah, I mean during this time where everyone is staying in, uh, you're doing these dancing resilience online classes, yeah, or just.
1: No, they're not classes. <laughs> they're I I think of them more as virtual dance parties. Uh huh. You know, if people want to follow my movements, they're welcome to, but. Um mainly I just make a playlist that's about 20 minutes long. Every single playlist ends with the song Resilient by Rising Appalachia. And, you know, we have young mothers whose uh, children are less than two months old who are dancing on their mother's bosom. Um, we have folks in their 70s, and one of my friends sent me a message today, I'm sending a couple of octogenarians your way. we have people of all ages and a lot of different mobilities and a lot of different levels of anxiety and and pain and
0: um everyone's kind
1: of bringing it to these dance parties yeah some are in quarantine
0: (laughs) you know when i came on like you know just being in my room my house the whole time just having that that hour just kind of pre-flowing i hadn't done that in a while and my body needs even though my mind my brain is like you know there's like things to do on this chair just just getting out on the living room and just spreading my arm you know just moving around just,
1: yeah
0: yeah free flower
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it makes a big difference and you know there's all kinds of stuff that kind of neurobiology tells us we need right of of self regulation of co-regulation and on the one hand like seeing another person on the screen offers you that co-regulation just in a conversation but when you're staying up in the mental the whole time Mm -hmm. and you're not engaging the creative mind and the creative body Mm -hmm. you're you're still a little bit stuck in a mechanized reality and but when you're kind of moving your bodies and silly ways, or free-flowing ways, or ways that you certainly don't do on your work Zoom calls, there's something very different that happens. um, And there's a different kind of connectedness that happens. And particularly, we're accompanied by music. um, And in any given group dancing, I guess the smallest one is just me and one other person, but the largest one has been, say, 16, 17 of us dancing on the screen. in almost every one of those groups, the people, at least two or three of those people, have been dancing together in the same place at some point in the past. Mm-hmm. So we have an embodied memory of being physically together, and that kind of gets summoned energetically into mm-hmm. the dance.
0: You know, t- I, yeah, this idea of co-regulation is also central in like trauma work, isn't it? And also in... Mm-hmm. Fostering resilience. Yeah, speak yeah. more about it, and that's kind of a, part, a big part of your thesis, isn't it?
1: Well, it's a it's a really big part of my work. So I I um, am the lead trainer for a program called STAR: Strategies for Trauma Awareness and Resilience. So I spend a lot of my time doing uh, teaching, training, and facilitation around um, what is trauma, how does it impact our bodies, brains, beliefs, and behaviors. And how does that often entrap us into cycles of acting in on self and acting out against others? And what are different ways that we can break free, acknowledge harm, and reconnect with ourself and with others? So that's kind of the the program that I am lucky enough to work with. And so that has given me a lot of chance to learn more about trauma, not only through reading and studying, but also through facilitating groups and and cultivating the learning that they have done in their own lives. And so I get to learn with them every time, you know, and, and out of neurobiology, we have the term self-regulation and co-regulation and self-regulation being like, okay, I know that if I get activated in some way that there are these certain breathing exercises I can do, or I can go for a run or I can do yoga or whatever my things are that help my nervous system calm down. Mm-hmm. There's that. But it's not only about DIY, you know, do it yourself, it's also about being with another person and being seen by them and seeing them and how our energies can feed each other. And that can go in not so great directions, but it can also go in really loving, life-giving directions um, when we, you know, develop that muscle.
0: Yeah, it's a powerful thing and it reminds me of this question that I've uh, it's been driving everything I'm doing these days, which is how do you connect with your real inner self? And I want to I want to present you that question. And I know poetry is a big part of your interest and mine as well and uh, you read me a poem the other day about like finding your poetry.
1: So- mm-hmm. Yeah, you want me to call that one up? <laughs> I lost my poetry. Can you help me find it? Where did I last have it? I'm not sure. It's been a while. What's it like? Well, sometimes it's tender. Sometimes it's fierce. Might it have run? Well, yeah, I guess it might have run away. Can you help me find it? Where does it show up when it's gone wandering? Well, it's shown up in forests and quiet times and places amidst transitions. Do I really need it? Yes. (laughs) Why? My poetry helps me feel alive. It helps me touch my experience in ways both gentle and true. Without it, I tend to digest my experience as gravelly truth, the kind that gets embedded in your knees the kind that scrapes your elbows, the splintering truth that is hard to see, but the pain is there, a whipping truth that doesn't see my humanity and softness and sensitivity. Somehow when my poetry is here, it helps me be with truth without abuse. Please help me find my poetry.
0: water in the background
1: <laughs> yeah i think my housemate is pouring some water <laughs> right,
0: so that's perfect timing, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah right <laughs> right
0: truth without abuse mm. yeah it, it reforms that relationship <laughs> in ourselves you know right now i'm reading um focusing oriented art therapy and one thing the lady ta- uh steven steven referred it to and uh, one thing she talks about in the book, this inner dialogue, you know, and one chapter is on transforming the inner critic. And, mm. <laughs> and uh, this dialectic between the critic, the criticized and the witnessing presence and asking what the needs are, what the fears are and, and such. And yeah, and like for some people, this relationship, this environment within a person can be toxic or abusive. And uh, I guess poetry has, or or the arts can kind of loosen that communication, would you say?
1: Yeah, yeah. I I mean, what was interesting, that one I wrote, I think in April of 2019, which was at the beginning of a healing process that, you know, basically when I submitted my first draft of my thesis to my advisor, Sally Atkins, she said, well, this is very courageous writing, but it's so full of shame and self-blame. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, what are you going to do with that? And it was like, oh yeah, that critic was so hard. And so I started this expressive arts process for myself. And mm-hmm. on one of the first days of that, that, that poem um, lost, you know, please help me find my poetry. That, that came. And then at one of the end points of about a month long arts-based healing process over the summer, this poem came that I made me feel like, yep, I got my poetry back. And I don't know, do we have time for me to share another one? Yeah, please. So, you know, a big part of my learning was around whiteness and um, how that manifests in a learning space. Cause I had configured this learning space to be, you know, anti-oppressive and anti-racist and trauma informed. And then I basically ended up doing the very harm that I was trying to work at healing. And, and while I was able to handle it in the class and the research space, I then my inner critic became so fierce with me afterwards. So this healing process was really necessary because I carried all this shame about not having been woke enough, not having been, you know, enlightened enough. <laughs> and and so over the course of the summer, all this healing work happened. And um I got to go to a base basically a two-day grief ritual, um, which was called Uh, empathy and equity, building empathy and equity. And it was about um, how do we really attend to the emotions that are involved in equity work. And coming out of that grief ritual, I had this phrase in my head, dismantle this mantle. And I didn't know what to do with that, but I just had that earworm, right? Mm-hmm. Dismantle, dismantle. Mm-hmm. So a few days later, I was like, what, what is this all about? And it was the very last day of my writing or that stage of writing anyway, <laughs> many, many stages. Um, and I couldn't remember if mantle was spelled with an L-E or an E-L, so I looked it up. (laughs) And there there are two spellings. My perfectionism is still very strong. Um, There are two spellings, and the E-L one is like the thing over the fireplace. And the L-E, M-A-N-T-L-E, had four definitions according to the dictionary I looked at. And one was a loose, sleeveless outer garment. Um, The second one was something that covers or wraps, you know, the town was covered with a mantle of snow. Mm. There's that, uh, there's that Christmas carol. that says over the ground lies a mantle of white. (laughs) Um, The third definition was the part of the earth's interior beneath the crust and above the central core. And the fourth definition was a fold of the body wall of a mollusk that produces the shell material. And suddenly it like just completely dropped into place. And this is what dropped attempting to dismantle this mantle of white that lies over the ground. I found these lies live deeper. I need to dig down to that part that lies beneath the crust, the mantle. I think I know the way to the central core of truth, but parts of the crust keep flying into my eyes. I'm drilling the beloved Earth. "Be still," she says. "Put down the drill," she says. "You are killing me." "Listen," she says. "I am singing. "Tura lura, lura, lura lie." "It's okay to cry," she says. "Stop beating yourself and destroying us both." Lay down your mantle, fold your beloved body into mine and I will restore your shell. Feel my crust and I will heal yours. Listen to what lies beneath and my mantle will support you. No need to drill to the core. Just dig with your hands slowly. Hmm. Pull the weeds, pick the food move your beloved body slowly kiss me with your belly and your back and the balls of your feet your brow your breasts your bottom slowly
0: it's very, uh, <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah it was it was a message that felt like the earth just gave to me mm once I stopped drilling. <laughs> uh,
0: right. You know, I can, uh, this idea of being in the earth, uh, down the hole and digging with your hands. <laughs> uh, yeah, is a metaphor I often come to when uh, I my lowest lows. That was the central metaphor. It was like being in mm. the hole, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. essentially hitting water. And then in that water, mm. finding your own reflection.
1: Hmm. No. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much, Katie, for um, yeah for this chat. Any uh, final thoughts to our listeners? Thoughts or questions, comments?
1: Just thank you for your um, playful, curious spirit.
0: It's always a joy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>